The following program is a podcast1.com production. Glad you're with us on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more, spend less, and avoid getting ripped off. Clark.com is our web address. You want deals? ClarkDeals.com gets that done. Oh, you got a question for me? Go to Clark.com slash ask. And coming up in 20 minutes, today's Clark Rageous Moment is about people who suffer a catastrophic loss to their home, and then their insurer doesn't want to play games, doesn't want to, I'm sorry, they do play games and don't want to repair their home. I'm going to tell you what you need to know. It's an embarrassment to the insurance industry and the government. And later this hour, you know, how a car looks when it first goes in your driveway isn't what matters to me. It's how reliable is it years down the road. I have new data on what brands are the most reliable and which ones are the least reliable so that when you spend your hard-earned dollar, you're not having to nurse it back and forth to the repair shop through the years of ownership. Talk about something going on in the U.S. Congress that has me on a, not a slow boil, I'd say that I'm like full boil. There are several people in the Congress that love the banks and all the money the banks give them. And these members of the U.S. House and U.S. Senate are doing the bidding for the banks that want to, again, be above the law. We have had an ugly history going back to mid-last decade with the nation's banks behaving in illegal ways, criminal ways, causing the Great Recession, leading to the multi-trillion dollar bailouts of the banks because they're reckless and criminal behavior. Nobody goes to prison. Nobody does a perp walk. And now the banks are using their influence in Washington to try to get the rules taken away that require them to follow the laws of the land. In particular, what has my my blood boiling are the laws that have been proposed, six different bills to this point, probably more by now that I haven't kept track of, to destroy the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. The only time in my lifetime that we've actually had a cop on the beat when banks start doing illegal things to you and me as consumers. A bank cheats you on your mortgage or your credit card or any kind of problem you're having with your checking account or whatever. Up until the creation of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the banks could do whatever they wanted. Because under the laws, the federal regulators, regulating banks, were only concerned about whether or not banks stayed solvent. Boy, they blew that job, didn't they, last decade? But no one, no one ever cared if banks broke laws repeatedly 
that concerned your and my wallet. Today, when you have a problem with a bank and you can't resolve it, you can file a complaint at consumerfinance.gov. And what that then does is that sends an inquiry from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to the bank involved and says, hey, we have this complaint, can you look into it? They don't advocate on your behalf. All they do is monitor and track the complaints. And what's happened again and again is that the bureaucracy at a bank, often it's not criminal behavior, often it's not somebody trying to steal, but it's usually just bureaucratic incompetence. And so once the inquiry comes in from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, it starts a 30-day clock for the bank to look into it, and the bank answers back, nope, it's not true, or yeah, we've talked to the customer, we've taken care of it. And so enforcement is just implied. It's up to the bank to resolve it with the consumer. And it's worked again and again and again. I remember a caller at our show who was facing foreclosure on a mortgage. And the caller, by her telling, and remember, I'd only heard her telling, had entered into one of those modification agreements and had, by her telling again, met every criteria required of the modification agreement and claimed to have proof that every payment was made just as agreed. But the bank had proceeded to foreclose anyway. And I had suggested the caller file a complaint at consumerfinance.gov. And then she called back weeks later and said it was like a miracle, that suddenly everything had gone from a full for effort by the bank to take the house away to saying, yes, you're doing everything we asked, everything's great. And then perhaps a year later, I heard from the individual who called back in, and we didn't put her on the air that time, and she said that she had been able to successfully refinance and everything was okay at that point. Don't know what's happened since. But if it had not been for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, that never would have happened. But the cynicism of the banks and the dirty money they funnel to the politicians has the politicians doing the bidding of the banks. And you need to know this, because right now there's a cop on the beat that the banks want destroyed. And I will not quietly sit here while the lobbyists for the banks take away your rights. It may happen anyway, but I am going to shine a light on it and let you know there are people who you have elected who've forgotten that you elected them and think they work for the giant monster mega banks. And how disgusting is that after everything we've been through as a country, all the havoc that was brought into our lives, 
by the dishonesty and crooked behavior of the banks. Randy's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Randy. Hey, Clark, how are you today? I'm doing great, thank you. I know it didn't sound like it just a minute ago because upset, <laughs> but but I actually am having a great day. Thanks. Good deal. Thank you for taking my question. Um, sure. The reason I'm, that I'm calling and, and what I'd like to, to get a little bit of clarity on is on your radio and TV spots, I've heard you mention many times, um, never, ever pay for a credit report. You know, don't ever do it. And you've mentioned several third-party credit reporters as suggestions to use. And my question to you is two-part. Number one, I'm wondering what do those people do with, with my information once I give them access to it? Because in my experience, nothing is really free. And then the second part of that question is, do they use... Uh, personally identifiable information about me, or is it metadata of some aggregation of thousands of creditors? Okay, that is a fantastic question, and I'm surprised no one has ever asked me that, Randy. Right, so let's start with the legal requirement that the three credit bureaus live under, that they must, by law, make a copy of of your credit report available to you once each year for free. So Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian joint ventured a website called annualcreditreport.com. And that is only a compliance site. They don't want to give you your report for free. They must by law. So instead of them having to do it, it's done by this third-party clearinghouse site that is to verify that you are who you say you are and gives you a free copy of each report. So you don't get a score or anything like that. You can pay them for a credit score, but you don't need to anymore. And so let's start with them. Then second, let's talk about like Credit Karma, which is uh, a very well-known company. So Credit Karma gives you your credit score for free. They'll monitor your credit for free to let you know if there's been any identity uh, fraud activity. They'll coach you things you need to do to raise your credit score, and you can check your score, I guess, every seven days they'll update it for free. So they're paying real money for that. I mean, they are paying serious money in order to provide you that stuff for free. So the way they make their money Think about it. When they pull your credit score, they know what kind of credit risk you are. And so they can then turn around and offer you tailor-made deals that people will pay them for referrals. So let's say you have a credit score of, I don't know, what number would you like to have today? 800. 800, which means you're golden. You know, 800 to 850 is considered to be golden, meaning that the banks want to come borrow money from you instead of the other way around. You will then get uh, targeted offers from Credit Karma for credit cards and other loan products that are appropriate for someone who has golden credit. And regardless of where you come on that scale, they would do that. So they are uh, in a position to have a very high acceptance rate on credit cards because they already know who you are they know what kind of credit profile you are and so they the odds are really good that they're going to offer you something you'll say hey i like that 
So they make money from it. And in return, what you give up is you're giving up some of your anonymity and privacy. There you go. Okay. So they're just, they they are offering free stuff. It's like Google. You know, why does Google give everything away? Everything away. Because they know so much about you that they can make right. a fortune from the ads targeted at you, and they're targeted specifically at you. It's the same kind of idea with Credit Karma. Gotcha. Okay, well, thanks for explaining that. Sure. And by the way, if you're not doing so yet, look at your credit card statements. You may have a monthly update of your credit score each month from several of your credit cards. Correct. One of them I do, actually. And see, that's great because it's that will be an actual FICO score, usually. What you're getting Correct. from Credit Karma is just their version of a manufactured score. So there's somewhat more accuracy with the ones you get for free from your credit cards. And gotcha. Well, good deal. Thank, thank sure. You. Oh, and I should mention the Discover thing. If you're not familiar with the offer from Discover, which allows you, even if you're not a Discover card customer, to get your credit score for free, and Discover does it, I'm sure, for the same reason Credit Karma does, to then tailor an offer to you, but there are no strings attached for you to get your credit score for free from Discover, you go to creditscorecard.com to get that. As we've discussed many times on the Clark Howard Show, if you live in a flood zone, you are not going to be covered by your normal homeowner's insurance in the event that your home is attacked by floodwaters. And people know that in some areas and just choose not to buy it. Others aren't aware they're in a flood zone. But what if you end up with your home flooded? You've done everything right. You buy flood insurance. You have a catastrophic loss. You then breathe a sigh of relief, right? Because you have the insurance. Wrong. Wait till you hear today's Clark Rageous Moment. Scams. Rip-offs. Outrages. It's a Clark Rageous Moment. This, to me, is so scandalous. You may remember the stories about what happened to people in a big chunk of Louisiana in midsummer last year in August, when people got hit by massive floods. Huge numbers of people had their homes heavily damaged or destroyed by flooding. The rain was coming down at three inches an hour, and a lot of people had 20 plus inches of rain. Well, that happens, low lying area. The homes fully flooded, in many cases wiped out. So when you have flood insurance, quarter million dollars coverage, peace of mind, the federal flood insurance program rebuilds your house, except there are multiple news reports, including one I've just read by WWL in New Orleans, that the people in the affected areas are being stonewalled by the adjusters working under contract for the federal flood insurance program. This is something that people have paid for in good faith, and they should have their money. Think about it. How many months it's already been, and people cannot get the adjusters to settle and pay. 
those who are receiving offers tend to be apparently around 30 cents on the dollar the cost of repairing what is damaged. This is unacceptable for us to treat our fellow Americans this way. Because remember, these are people who did everything right. They had homeowner's insurance. They had flood insurance. Their homes got hit by floods. They paid the high premiums over the years. Their homes should be repaired. You know, the federal flood insurance program has been insolvent ever since Superstorm Sandy hit New Jersey and the Northeast. And the program has not had its its funding restored by the Congress. And so that's why the people of Louisiana are suffering without their money. Okay, here are some really surprising car facts for you. In Churchill, Canada, residents leave their cars unlocked. That's in case someone needs to escape a polar bear. It's true. And in Sweden, drivers are required by law to keep their headlights on at all times. Day, night, rain, sunshine, doesn't matter. And now, here's another interesting and actually helpful thing about cars that you might not know. TrueCar also helps people get used cars. That's right. TrueCar isn't just for new cars. Their certified dealer network also has an inventory of over 700,000 pre-owned cars nationwide. So whether you're looking for a new or used car, you can get real pricing on actual inventory and a better buying experience through the TrueCar Certified Dealer Network. Oh yeah, here's another fun fact. TrueCar customers can see if they're getting a good or great price before they buy. They're also more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they connect with their TrueCar Certified Dealers. So when you're ready to buy that car, new or used, visit TrueCar and enjoy a better car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. So great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make. Clark.com is where we live on the web. If you have a question for me, Clark.com slash ask. There's so much in the news about new cars, new cars, new cars, new cars. But the reality is, 80% of the time, we're buying used cars. There is a segment of the population that either prefers new cars or they're affluent enough that they buy new cars. But most people find their vehicle on the used car lot. And that's why I find two particular things so valuable when you're looking to buy a used car. One is Consumer Reports every April puts out a guide of how reliable every, just about every, except ultra-low production models, every vehicle pretty much on the roads in the United States, how reliable it is, how unreliable it is. They even take it further and put together a list of recommended vehicles to buy used, and then a much longer list, vehicles that you should avoid buying that are used vehicles. There's also J.D. Power. J.D. Power doesn't have the depth of database information Consumer Reports does, but is also very respected on the reliability record of used vehicles. They have just released their list by make, 
what makes of vehicles are the most reliable and what makes are the least reliable three years in. So who cares what the vehicle's like when it's factory showroom fresh? What really matters, how does a vehicle do after it's been on the road for three years, typically 35 to 40,000 miles? You may drive a lot less, a lot more, but typical person in three years, 35 to 40,000 miles. How's that car doing? Because it's coming closer, is at the end of its manufacturer's warranty. The reliability is important. The cost of repairs are important. So without further ado, four makes got the highest rating, which is five circles for reliability. Two of them are luxury brands. Two are regular brands. Two are Japanese. One is German. One is American. The four winners this year, Lexus, Porsche, Toyota, and Buick. Now, what's interesting about that, Lexus and Toyota are both the same company. Lexus is just a badge for the luxury branded vehicles of Toyota. And those four brands, again, Lexus and Porsche, rich people cars, Toyota and Buick, regular people cars, They are the most reliable brands. Now then, there are only two brands that get four circles for reliability. And they are Mercedes-Benz and Hyundai. So think about that contrast. You have Mercedes, which is considered to be an ultra-premium to premium brand. And then Hyundai which is considered to be affordable, sensible transportation. And there they are tied in reliability after three years. Now, there are a number, a large number of brands that are in the mushy middle that are neither among the most reliable or the least reliable. So let's move to the bottom of the heap. Who is worst? Absolute worst are Fiat, Jeep, and Infinity. Now, this isn't in terms of if you enjoy them, you love the looks, you love the mojo. This is in terms of reliability. And so, they I love how they do it at J.D. Power because they depend on money from the industry for um, money to run their operations. So they call, (laughs) I love these, the top-rated ones are among the best. Those two that I mentioned, Hyundai and Mercedes, better than most. Everybody else, they say, is above average. It's like, like, woe be gone. And then the ones that got atrocious scores for reliability, they're called the rest. So you know the real story. The bottom of the heap, Fiat, Jeep, Infinity. Okay, so to all of you who adore your Jeeps, I didn't say that your Jeep is not cool. I didn't say your Jeep doesn't look fun. But in terms of reliable, it's not, according to the data. And Infinity, which is Nissan's luxury make, 
The interesting thing is regular Nissan gets in that average reliability group, but Infiniti is at the bottom. And at Clark.com, when you go to our show notes, you can click on the link and see every make and model. But this stuff from Consumer Reports, in this case from J.D. Power, is so important. If you're a new vehicle buyer and you keep your vehicles a long time, well past the normal warranty period, knowing whether or not it's going to be reliable, obviously important. But if you are a used vehicle buyer, central to your purchase, this is part of what's called the funnel process. If you will limit your search for vehicles to those that are most reliable, and within those that are most reliable, find ones that you would enjoy that speak to you, as if you will, and then have whatever vehicle you've settled on checked by a mechanic of your choosing so you don't buy trouble, you will have greatly improved odds of having a good experience as an owner of a used vehicle. Jim joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Jim. Hi, Clark. Pleasure to talk to you. Well, great to have you here. You are in the middle of a loan for what kind of product? Well, I have a loan already for a mortgage on a home I just purchased. And I've heard you speak before when people are shopping their loans, if they were going to have the potential of getting PMI that they should do an 80-10-10. Well, I wish I would have listened to you or that episode when, uh, before I had my loan. So I'm 18 months into this new loan, and I'm doing the figures, and boy, I'd like to get out of this PMI. So I was wondering if you had any suggestions other than paying $2,000 out of my pocket right now to get to my 80% of the value of the property. Say that last part again, paying $2,000 does what for you? I'm sorry, $20,000. Oh, I thought you said two. I I missed that (laughs) because I was like, you're that close to having 20% equity? Okay, so where you are right now in this home is you have a, a mortgage that requires PMI at an interest rate of what? What are you at in the loan? Four, Four and a quarter. Okay, you may have some room to do something. Do you know okay. over the 18 months you've owned the home, have home values in your neighborhood stayed the same, gone down a little, gone up? I have to say stay the same. Okay, that doesn't give you a lot of wiggle room. I was hoping you were going to say, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. The house across the street went for so much money. So you don't have any story like that for me. No, I, I don't think so. If anything, it's probably on the uh, negative side. So, All right. you Then you may be stuck. You may be paying okay. that PMI till you reach a point that you uh, are in a position to pay down some of the principal so that you could appraise out and be out of PMI. Because the alternative, if you had told me that there'd been some run-up in value over the last year, then you're much more likely to be able to do a refi into an 80-10-10. And for people who don't know what that means, uh, you take out a first mortgage for 80% of the value of the home, second mortgage for 10% of the value, and in your case, you make up the other 10 potentially with equity build up. So when you initially bought the house, how much down did you put? What percent? 
Um, just about 10%. Oh, so you did do 10. And you'd need another 20000 in the deal to appraise out. Correct. All right. And is there any family member who is whining about how little they're earning on their savings? No. A <laughs> small family. <laughs> the reason I was asking that is, you know, if somebody's earning at best 1% on their savings and you could pay them, let's say, uh, 6% on a second mortgage, the risk would probably be reasonable for them to take that on. And you could, uh, you could even look at would it save you money if you went to uh, Prosper.com or Lending Club and looked at borrowing enough money that would allow you to appraise out, even with the fact that you'd pay a higher interest rate, you state the reason to be able to remove PMI from your loan, and even though it's not secured by the mortgage, people understand it's not a lifestyle question, you're trying to do something practical for yourself, and see if that would save you money. Hmm, that's interesting. I've heard you speak of them before, too. So. so if you were to take out a loan large enough that would allow you to appraise out, and you see what that payment would be, remember, you'd be reducing what interest carry you'd have on your mortgage at that point, and you'd be removing PMI. That might, the numbers might work on that. Otherwise, okay. you just bide your time, and when you get to the point where you have enough equity or home values rise some, or you have additional cash you could use to pay down the principal, then you bail on the PMI. Right, right. So when you were talking about the appraisal, that you were just hoping that the home values go up in my area and then get a reappraisal, and that might help me out a little bit there, too? No, that helps you out. I mean, it, it, that's how so many people get rid of PMI. Right, right. So your best friend is time and also that values rise. And if your neighborhood does surprise you and it starts having some appreciation, then it'll get so easy. It'll be an easy lift, not a heavy lift, to get rid of that PMI. Melissa's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Melissa. Hello. Melissa, you're paying an annual fee on a credit card. Yes, and I've had it for several years. And I want to close it and cut it up, but I can't because I was told if you do that, that it hurts your credit score. That is true depending on your circumstance. So this credit card you have, how many credit cards do you have in addition to this one? Uh, three. Oh, you do have three. Mm-hmm. That's great. And are the three others you have, are they Visa, MasterCard, Discover, American Express, are they major cards? Yes, Visa. Mm-hmm. Okay, and how much of your credit limits are you using right now? Do you I mean by that? You... Well, I pay it all. I don't use I, I use enough just where I can pay it in full every month. Fantastic. I go, you know, so I, I learned that a long time ago. All right. So if you have so three have, so other my cards, is good. sorry, it just makes me my credit's good, but I don't want it to lower the score by closing one, or because I've already called them and asked them because I didn't even realize they charged me a fee on it until I um, got my um, I go on every month and or like every so often and just check the card that like this card just to make sure nobody's scamming or 
charge anything on it. It's still zero. I go through and I check it. And I, but it just when I called them and it was at $39, they told me I could close it, but I needed if I did, that it would hurt my credit score. So I just And then they told me I needed to get some further information on how that wouldn't happen. All right. So you don't need to worry about that. The, the reason I was asking you what other cards you have, if you already have three other major credit cards, mm-hmm. you should feel free to close the one with the annual fee. Okay. Particularly if you pay your balance in full on all the cards every month, you, you're using a very small amount of your available credit. So mm-hmm. feel good about closing that account. Okay. And save that. That's $39 back in your pocket. True. So who doesn't want $39? Gosh, that would buy me how many lunches? Adam is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Adam, we were just talking about used cars and how reliable they are. And you want to talk about buying a certified pre-owned car. Is that right? Yeah, Clark, how are you doing? Great. Thank you, Adam. So I'm researching used cars, and I've got a deal that sounds a little too good to be true. Tell me. Um, One of the major manufacturers that I'm researching has a uh, certified car deal, and you're always saying certified just means it's an extra 182-point inspection or whatever, but they're offering up a uh, free extended warranty with their certified cars if you buy it within the original manufacturer's warranty. So that is that is a brilliant move by that automaker, and there are a handful doing that today. And the reason they do it is automakers are leasing so many of their cars now, and they uh-huh. want to boost the value of their vehicles that are that they're taking back in. The way so many of the leases are structured, the vehicles come back before the end of the manufacturer's warranty period. And they're able to boost the value of the vehicles by in resale by saying you get the remainder of the manufacturer's warranty plus you get an additional usually two years. Interesting. And so what I've said, and I should clarify what I've said about certified pre-owned programs, is that that's a marketing term that there's no legal backing of that term it's just a term they use throughout the car business sometimes a certified used car program will actually have meaning to it like you're describing that you're getting something for the fact that you're buying through their certified used car program okay but even if you do buy from the program you're looking at adam it doesn't change the fact that I want you to have the vehicle inspected by a mechanic of your choosing. Oh, yes, always. Because the manufacturer will say, because the inspections are done by the dealer, by the franchise dealer, manufacturer will say you've got to do these 182-point checks or 114-point checks or whatever, and the dealer is on their honor to do them and to recondition the vehicle properly Sometimes that'll happen, sometimes it won't, and you can't go by honor system. That's why you need to have a mechanic of your own choosing inspect that vehicle. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans proudly supports this podcast. 
When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, it's important to work with someone you can trust, someone who's got your best interests in mind. And with Rocket Mortgage, you'll get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial info to get a mortgage approval in just minutes. You can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure that you get the mortgage solution that's right for you. So whether you're looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. Skip the bank. Skip the waiting. Go completely online at quickenloans.com slash save. That's quickenloans.com slash S-A-V-E. Let Rocket Mortgage help you get the exact mortgage solution that you need. Go to quickenloans.com slash save. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. It's great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show where it's about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me so that you can save more, spend less, and avoid getting ripped off. Coming up in a half hour, a way that you might defray some of your costs of operating your car, and at the same time, you may be able to get cheaper transportation for yourself. I'm going to hit you with that riddle in just 30 minutes. Clark.com is our website. If you want deals, you like to stretch that dollar, check out ClarkDeals.com. And when you want to run something by me, Go to clark.com slash ask. I want to talk about something that I discussed last summer. There was a proposal floated last summer to end the confusion on perishable items when they were okay to buy, when they were okay to consume, and when you needed to throw them out. Because... It is something that I did in my TV work, and you ask people, you know, is this okay to eat? You show them labels and stuff, and people's answers were all over the place because of what was stamped on items. You know, there have been, I think it's 12, 15 different things that food manufacturers put on things and other manufacturers of perishable goods, and so we end up throwing away So much stuff that's fine to eat, that's good to eat. In fact, I have become, well, more courageous with food that has expired in our refrigerator. And if I start to eat something and it tastes bad, I throw it away. I'm not talking about something that's six months out of date. But I mean something that's just a little out of date. And if I take a taste and it tastes fine, I keep eating. If it doesn't, I throw it away. Unscientific, letting my taste buds make the decision for me. But as I told you last year, there was a proposal that now I can tell you today has been adopted that's going to make it so much easier for you. The various trade associations in the food industry have reached a deal to use only two labels on an item you buy in the store. The item will say, if it's a perishable item, will say either used by or best if used by. If it says used by, 
That means if you're past that date, you should chuck that item. But far more often, you will see best if used by. And that yogurt I'm talking about probably will end up with that new label on it. And it will mean that it will be at its peak of freshness or flavor or whatever on that date, up to that date, that says best if used by. But after that date, it will still be A-OK for you to consume. And I am so excited about this because we Americans throw out by one estimate I saw recently, 40 percent 40% of the food that we buy. And this will be a gradual thing. Some, some food manufacturers will do this immediately. You may have already seen this new standard. But the gobbledygook of all the various confusing labeling will gradually phase out over the next year. And this is absolutely terrible because we as consumers, almost just a hair under 100% of us, by survey, have thrown out food that food scientists say is just fine But because of how it was labeled on the container, we threw it out. This is an area, don't be ridiculous. I mean, there are people who who have things that are sitting in their refrigerator that are so far past date that it's just not smart to consume it. But more often than not, we are erring on the side of too much caution And again, let me hit you with how the new labels are going to work. And again, you'll likely, next time you're in the supermarket, you'll already see items in compliance. There will just be two phrases, use by or best if used by. And follow that, and you are going to save yourself money. Bill is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Bill. Good afternoon, Clark. How are you, sir? Great, thank you. You want to talk about food? I do, because I produce food. You do? What, uh, what do you, uh, do you have a farm that you grow food, or what do you have? We, we have a small farm, and we raise beef cattle. And when I heard someone recently talking about how terrible it is to eat sensate beings, I was a little upset because you cannot convert every acre of agricultural production land in the United States and Canada into a vegetable garden. And a lot of land is just not suitable for growing vegetables. It's low rainfall. It's too cold. It doesn't have enough uh, total nutrients on it. In the Midwest and the Upper West, it takes 20 acres for one cow to get enough groceries to raise a calf. And we don't feed our cattle in a feedlot. We don't give them synthetic hormones. We don't give them routine antibiotics. We don't feed them 
uh, steroids. They're out grazing on pasture. Their diet is 95 to 99% grass and hay. We take care of them because I'll tell you, as a farmer, you don't abuse an animal because an abused animal will not make you any money. And uh, I... I, you know, if a person doesn't want to eat meat, that's fine with me. That leaves more steak for me and you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, you probably have noticed over the years that there have been a number of people who don't eat meat, uh, vegetarians or full vegans, who've been very unhappy with me and expressed pretty strong feelings that that I'm harming the earth by my love of beef they're not not even worrying about uh some people's concern that i'm harming myself by not being a vegetarian but i i'm a meat eater and i love eating steak i love eating hamburger i love eating filet but there are people who feel that uh that that me eating it is wrong and you growing cattle is wrong uh, that's true and, and i take it from the standpoint of I'm I'm uh, trained as an agronomist. My tra- training in college is a soil scientist, and I look at what is best for the land. And I don't do a lot of tillage. I use my tractor mostly to feed hay. I uh, plant some rye every fall for them to graze on through the winter. I don't do a lot that is harmful to the environment. In fact, my cows, because they're out on pasture and eating grass, they're helped in the environment by sequestering carbon in the soil rather than, you know, putting off a lot of proverbial cow flatulence like it, the uh, cattle that are finished in a feedlot. And if somebody wants to do a feedlot thing, I have no objection. But there are thousands, millions of acres in the United States that cannot be used to grow direct consumption human food. Now, the I understand fully the logic that, well, if it's growing it and being fed to an animal, the inefficiency of that step. But there's so many acres that can't grow human food. So we need to do that cow is a lot more efficient at harvesting things like grass and uh, twigs and leaves and herbs and forage that I can't eat and digest and turn it into something that I really can eat and digest. Steak in a hamburger. Uh, last night my wife and I had a wonderful chuck roast and I, I don't have an argument if somebody wants to do it for health reasons for themselves, go for it. I am all for whatever diet you need to be personally healthy. But don't tell me that I need to do it for the earth because it's just not so. Well, I, I appreciate your perspective as somebody who lives every day uh, raising cattle, and that is hard work what you do. And I have a question for you since you were uh, trained in agriculture that's what you went to college for. Did you hear me talk recently about growing um, vegetables, growing produce in warehouses instead of in fields? Yes. And it's not exactly warehouses. It'd be in plastic-covered greenhouses more more than warehouses would be correct, yes. And do you believe, based on your knowledge, that that is going to be a solution to making more affordable produce? I don't know that it'll be more affordable necessarily, but the high-intensity production of, um, I don't know what you would want to call that, um, but high, super high-intensity production can bring the value per acre 
into the tens of thousands of dollars per acre. Just something simple like using a cold frame over a tomato bed can bring your tomatoes to market three weeks sooner. And that kind of thing can dramatically increase production so that you can grow a lot of produce. And I mean, a we're talking about thousands, multiple tens of thousands of dollars per acre uh, instead of a few hundred dollars per acre. Uh, growing produce is the single highest value use of agricultural land, but you can't do that on every single acre. Right. Well, Bill, I appreciate your perspective, and I, I'm sorry if you were offended by one of oh, our one of your fellow I listeners. Wasn't. I was I was more amused than anything. Clark, let me let me tell you this background wise. I uh, chased women and drank beer too much when I went to college the first time. I went back to school at 48, finishing my bachelor's degree at 51. Wow! And I appreciate my education so much more than I would have if I got it when I was 21. Well, that is real stick to that you ended up getting your degree at 51 years old. Yes. That is great. I, I really appreciate you sharing that with me. Jeffrey's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Jeffrey. Good afternoon. How are, you? How are you? Very good. You have found an uninvited guest in your life. Yes, I have. What's the story? Uh, I periodically check my credit report uh, just just to keep an update on it. And a couple weeks ago, I happened to find in it a collection notice uh, on my credit report. Not knowing exactly what it was, uh, I did some investigation and found that it was a bill from 2011 uh, in January when I had had a heart attack. Oh, no. How are and you? How are you now six I'm, years I'm later? Fi- I am I am fine now. Okay. I'm doing very well. I'm glad to uh, hear that. But uh, the problem I have with it is I heard nothing about it in the six years since. Uh, I... Uh, it showed on my credit report that it was uh, issued one four of two thousand seventeen, and in checking with the the provider, I found that it actually was given to the collection agency August of two thousand eleven. So, with an old old item like that, first of all, medical be- uh, debts like that represent roughly half of the the number of Americans who have some mark on their credit or things like that. And your credit, other than this one item, is completely clean. Yes. So you have two choices. One is you just let several more months run and the item vanishes forever from your credit report. It cannot be there again. Once uh, typically the credit bureaus suppress at six years, nine months, but the law allows them to leave that on for seven years. Correct. The other alternative right. is you can reach a deal to uh, settle that debt. It's almost certainly beyond any statute of limitations. 
where they could sue you against or anything like that. How much money do they say you owe? Uh, $1,500. And nobody in six-plus years has bothered to contact you about a supposed $1,500 bill you owe? No. No, and I called them and asked them about that. They said, well, we have sent you letters. And I said, well, I, I did not receive anything. They said, well, the letters that we send are, are a plain envelope, and it says it's from Jacksonville, Florida. Well, I mean, who knows if they ever did send you a letter, if they've sent it to the wrong address or whatever. This will be your choice. But if you reach a deal with them to pay whatever amount you choose to pay, you need in writing first that it will constitute payment in full. Do not enter into any payment plan or anything like that. You want in writing that you paying X number of dollars settles the debt in full. Or if they're not cooperative, let the clock run, and by the end of this year, it's history anyway. And the great news, you're still with us six-plus years later. It's time for you to have an Ask Clark from Joel. Ask Clark, so something you post at Clark.com. Who you got an Ask Clark from? Clark, you got a question from Michael. He says, what's your opinion on real estate investing sites around the web? I'm in my 30s and I've been starting to invest my money. Is this a scam or a possible investment option for me? Not a scam, but I need for you to know real estate investing where money is pooled is huge right now and there's more money chasing deals than there's room for the thing you should look at with any of these is what fees do you pay you want the fees to be below one half of one percent if they're higher than that you better think twice or three times Everybody knows that February is the shortest month of the year. But at Podcast One, we aren't taking any breaks. We've got a boatload of new shows coming your way this month. Like two from Forbes, Under 30, and The List. Or Postmortem with Mick Garris. And Clipcast, the official, unofficial podcast of the L.A. Clippers. But we're not done. Still to come this month, The Raven Effect from Pro Wrestler Raven. A little bit of Growing the Dynasty with Jeff and Jessica Robertson. Plus, in upcoming weeks, shows from Kim Zolchak, Dina Tori Spelling, The Retronauts, and many more. To get more details, go to podcastone.com now. Podcastone.com. Stay tuned for 60 seconds of AP News headlines right after this podcast. It's great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show where it's about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make. Follow me at facebook.com slash Clark Howard. Clark.com is our website. And if you happen to be joining today's show late, go to Clark.com slash on demand where you can catch up on anything you've missed. Google does all kinds of crazy things. And they own Waze, W-A-Z-E. If you've never heard of Waze, it is by far the best traffic app available. It uses basically crowdsourcing to make sure you know the best way to get around, the best way to avoid traffic jams, and will make you an expert in congested cities at making dangerous left turns. Because Waze doesn't really care if you're coming up to an intersection where you're like a kamikaze trying to turn left without a a light to turn at. But it will get you around traffic tie-ups like nobody's business. They also are using all their crowdsourced ability 
was something they've experimented with in the Middle East and in California that is working so well, they're getting ready to roll this out in city after city around the United States. It is an ultra-low-cost competitor to Uber and Lyft, but not a direct competitor. you got to hang with me to follow how this works. So let's say I'm commuting, and this is only for commuters. You can't do this as a job. They'll throw you right out if they sense that you're somehow trying to earn a living doing it. But when you hear the reimbursements, you'll know it couldn't possibly be to earn a living. But you're driving somewhere, and you can pick up your cost of driving at the IRS-approved rate, which is 50 how many cents is it a mile? 56, 58, whatever, 54. What, I think it's 54 now. And so somebody who's going generally where you are, they'll find you on the Waze app and ask you if you'll pick them up, all electronically, of course. And you pick them up, and you have a rider. You get reimbursed so much per mile. Drop them off, you're done. And people have taken to it. And the reason is, for the person hitching a ride with you, it's a tiny fraction of the cost of Uber and Lyft, typically about a third of the cost. Because remember, all you're doing for the driver is you're covering his or her expense of transportation. And it's not anonymous because, you know, with you got to be a registered user of ways to use this. You know who the driver is. They know who you are. You got ratings and all that. And it is a tremendous way to save money during commute times. And I was thinking this through. If you're familiar with something that's very popular thing in Virginia, has a very unfortunate term, being a slug, but there are a number of freeways in Northern Virginia that require three or four people in order to go in the high-occupancy vehicle lane, the carpool lane. And in the Northern Virginia area, the commute times are like three days to get somewhere. I mean, it's forever to get through traffic, not literally three days. It just feels like it. And so at freeway entrances all around Northern Virginia, people will gather who are going to, let's say, to um, Capitol Hill, or they're going to the Pentagon, or they're going wherever in uh, the Washington, D.C. area, and people will come along, and they'll need two more riders in a car, three or one or whatever, and people will get in, and they just ride with absolute strangers through the freeway system, so everybody wins. They get a much quicker ride as a driver, And people get basically a free ride. This is an electronic way of actually knowing who you're picking up. And for the driver, you get some direct reimbursement of your costs. And then at the same time, it's not like Uber or Lyft where somebody's doing it for a living. So the rates need to be where somebody can earn a living from it. And again, only at commuting times. So this is a real opportunity 
for people to save money. The number of wazers that participate is relatively small, but the people who do seem to come back again and again offering rides, and for you, an ultra-cheap way to get around. And again, this will roll out city by city. If you are a Waze user and have not registered, register with Waze, and then you'll be notified of your opportunity to be a driver or a rider. Luana's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Luana. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great, thank you. You've got some cash sitting around, and you wanted my address to send it to me? Absolutely. I have a number of things going on, actually. I have my 401k and and, um, the bulk of my retirement savings uh, in what I call stuffing the mattress mode in stable value, and I know that that's not the best place. However, that's where it is currently. Then I also have a, a large amount of uh, retirement as well. Actually, in the polar opposite position, I went 100% stock and um, did quite well, bought in at 38, and now it's trading over a little uh, of over 130 currently, and you may know which stock that is. <laughs> and, I don't, um, but you're, you're putting half of your retirement funds in a single stock. It's not half, but it's a fair amount. Okay. And um, and so I have very high risk um, allocation there. Then I have the majority, as I say, stuffing the mattress in a stable value fund. Then I have some other in a more diversified portfolio. So those are the three uh, background facts. And then I have some liquid cash just through savings as well as um, being an empty nester. So downsizing and doing some of those things, and now I'm looking across what's available and saying, now what? Okay, so that is a a jumbled picture with the retirement stuff, having a lot of cash uh, available to deal with rainy day. Nothing necessarily wrong with that for the money outside of investing, outside of retirement funds. And all you can do with that idle cash is you just earn the best you can in the market, which will get steadily better over the next two years as interest rates rise in the economy. Today, if you were to stash your cash in just a 1% or so savings account, that's the best place you can put the idle cash. But your retirement funds, that's a really curious mix. So stable value for people who are not aware, that is a 401k equivalent of kind of like a CD. Just ultra, ultra safe place to put money not earning a lot. Then having a big chunk of your retirement money in an individual stock, that is a very high risk, highest of risk to have it. And then having money in the diversified portfolio, that is a more moderate risk. And so that brings me to two questions for you. Ready? Yes. How soon are you planning to retire? Good question. I had had these fantasies of retiring early, which is why I am trying to systematically hedge my bet. However, I really enjoy working. So um, that question is to be determined. 
But again, I do fantasize about retiring early in the next, say, five to eight years. However, um, you know, traditionally, if I were to retire at retirement age, I would still have another 15 or so to go. Wow. So you are very young, but also of a mind thinking of retiring in as little as five to eight years. Do you have in your retirement account, do you have a choice of a target retirement fund? I don't know specifically. I'll need to take a look at that. Tell me more about what that is. All right. So what that is, is you pick a year closest to when you think you might retire. And your combination of thinking you might retire in five to eight years, but being extra young, I would like you to look uh, somewhere more like maybe uh, at a 2030 fund, where you pick a year Mm -hmm. closest to when you might retire, and that's what you put your money in. And the company managing the target retirement fund changes over time the mix of investments as you get closer and closer to the year 2030. Yes. So the idea is right now Um, you have money that's sitting there like you're going to use it tomorrow, Then you have money that is at such a high risk being so concentrated in one stock that it's money that you almost need more like a 20-year horizon on. And then you have another diversified portfolio. You need a rebalancing of what you've got going on. And a target retirement fund, if that's a choice for you in your plan, would be a really good place for you to look. But I think you also might benefit from sitting down for an hour or two with somebody who is with Garrett Planning Network? Have you ever heard me mention them? Yes. And that way you sit down with somebody who's got no agenda other than giving you guidance based on what your goals are and what you've got. And having someone to bounce those ideas off who is a true professional in investing, who can laser target on what you're trying to accomplish, I think would be money very well spent on your part. And congratulations on working so hard at living on less than what you make. Donna is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Donna, you want to talk about Project Fi? Yes, I do. I just uh, ran across some articles that you had about different um, possibilities for cell phones, and Project Fi wasn't there, and I am uh, fairly new to Fi because it's also a fairly new service, and um, I thought that was an omission from your list. I would agree that's true. I tested Project Fi for eight months, and I thought it was very impressive as a cell phone service. The reason that I may have neglected to add it to my shopping guide is that in comparison to Republic Wireless, it tends to be more expensive for people because of the way it works with, oh, it's funny, I just signed into my portal and it said, your service has been canceled. (laughs) (laughs) But Project Fi is potentially a very good cell phone service the network may be the best of any cell phone provider out there 
But if you were, well, a, I think it has benefits on the network because they do have they use the towers for three other services. Isn't that Instead great? Limited to just one. Exactly, but- exactly. And the other thing is the data piggybacks often on Wi-Fi, not counting against the data. But my issue with Project Phi, and it may not be a concern for you, is if you use very large amounts of data, Donna, I don't recommend it. So it has to be for somebody who is a moderate data user. Project Phi is incredibly reliable and dependable and works extremely well. I'll add it. Gordon is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Gordon. How are you today? Clark, I'm doing well. Thank you for taking my call. Sure, Gordon. Let's see if I can be of help to you with your child. All right. My oldest is getting ready to graduate from college with a bachelor's degree and heading off to grad school to pursue her want to be a college music professor. So my question is... You have somebody with real musical talent, huh? Well, I won't brag, but she takes after her father. How impressive. (laughs) Because I don't have a musical Uh, bone in my body. Oh, I bet you have more than you think. No, I don't. Trust me. (laughs) (laughs) My question is, uh, it's coming tax time, and I'm wanting her to get uh, the best value for her money should she have to take out loans. And I'm wondering, do I cut her loose and uh, let her become on her own, or should I keep her as a dependent? Okay, so as far as being emancipated, as being uh, not a dependent, that is determined by basically simple math. If you are truly providing less than 50% of her financial support, as a general rule, then she is emancipated and she is no longer a dependent. Okay. On the other hand, if you are providing uh, 50% or more support, and obviously right around 50%, it's open to interpretation. The idea right. really is that she is financially independent, maybe working full-time, maybe she's a, a graduate assistant while she's in graduate school, and she's providing for her own living expenses, then she is emancipated and is no longer your dependent. Excellent. Where does she rest on that scale? Well, she kept her end of the bargain going through grade school and middle school and high school by getting straight A's. So I kept my end of the bargain by paying her bachelor's degree 100%. And she's leaving school in May debt-free. However, she understands that uh, any degree past the bachelor's is on her dime. Uh, Her number one pick school has already offered her a uh, place with an assistantship. We just don't know how much that's going to be, and we won't know till about uh, the first of next month. So for her truly to be emancipated, if the assistantship is not enough to cover that percent of her overall um, amount of expenses, then if she does want to be emancipated, she'll have to have an additional part-time job potentially. And it's just a matter of weighing how you want to play it. And by the way, as far as how a school would treat her, 
they may have a look-back period before they would accept that she is truly emancipated and no longer your dependent. But uh, that is really neat what you did with her, that it was a merit system, and she produced the grades, she earned the free college, and that is a, a wonderful motivation that you gave your daughter. And I want to tell you, Gordon, best of luck to her in grad school. Thank you, sir. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Clark Howard Podcast. Download new episodes every Monday through Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. I'm Mick Garris. When it comes to horror, you might know me as a writer, producer, and director. But I also love making people open up. I'm getting together with the most fascinating people in fright filmmaking. I'm going to pick their brains and find out what they know. But if they've got any secrets they're determined to keep, I have ways of making them talk. Download new episodes of Postmortem with Mick Garris every other Wednesday at PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes. What we're learning about the Manchester bomber. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. The father of the alleged Manchester suicide bomber says his son didn't do it. We don't believe in killing innocents, he told the AP. But the father reportedly was a member of an al-Qaeda-backed group in Libya years ago. That, according to a former Libyan security official. Meanwhile, police have carried out raids on a block of apartments in Manchester. Witnesses say they heard explosions. Alan Kinsey was a neighbor of the alleged bomber. The actual family that had been there, I'd, I'd never really come across them in bad ways it was always even when I said hello he never seemed to speak back to you he was just like kept themselves to themselves and that was about it the British putting more military troops on the streets now as police say it's clear this is a network they're investigating President Trump has arrived in Brussels for NATO meetings after a visit this morning with the Pope at the Vatican I'm Rita Foley